On this episode of The Art Dealer Show, you will hear gallery owner Theron Cambridge say, Why are they your friend? I don't know. They're just my friend. And art is a relationship that has to do with that genuine experience like a friend would have. And nobody can tell you what to buy. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have part two of my conversation with art dealer and co-owner of the San Francisco Art Exchange, Theron Cambridge. We uh, put out the first part of this conversation a few episodes back, and if you haven't had a chance yet to take a listen to it, I highly suggest you go back. It's filled with some fantastic stuff, and it's really well worth the listen. Hey, pull up a stool, because I've got a story for you, and it's probably unlike you have ever heard before. Now, in the beginning, it's probably going to sound very familiar. As a matter of fact, for a little bit, you're probably going to think it's when you have yourself or another friend in the business has told you something like this, but I'm going to bet you don't have a story exactly like this. I actually haven't thought about this story in a very, very long time, and there's a reason for it. It's from a very, very long time ago, at least for me, and it's from a time when I actually worked for today's guest, Theron Cambridge, and his business partner, Jim Hartley, worked in their gallery in San Francisco, the San Francisco Art Exchange. But let's start here. A a little bit of a confession, if you will. After working the gallery floor for the better part of a decade, I started to feel like, well, working the gallery floor is kind of like being tied to a post. For as much as I like, and sometimes even love, that thing that happens when you work a gallery floor of never quite knowing who's going to walk in, but getting to be surprised by the the different kinds of folks who will enter into your gallery on a regular basis, or and the stories they bring and the backgrounds they have, well, that part can be fantastic. But if you've done this gig, you know like I do, that's a coin with two sides. And the flip side of that is... Along with the neat and interesting folks out there who might come into a gallery, well, there's a certain somebody, a kind of crazy, if you will. If you saw them on the bus, you go to the other end of the bus. If you're on the street, you go to the other side of the street. Those people, those people, well, they see it for exactly as I was feeling it. They see you as a nice person who has to listen to them and, yes, is tied to a post. Tied to a post inside a well-lit and comfortable, air-conditioned, fancy place where they can come in and share their own special brand of crazy. And when I come in there, they've got to listen to me. Now, it's not going to be like the folks at McDonald's who, when I start talking to them, they always get up and shuffle off to the other side of the restaurant. No, this guy... This guy's going to talk to me. And not only does he have to talk to me, but maybe, maybe he'll consider that I'm just some sort of brand of eccentric and that maybe I'm a potential buyer. Yeah, that's it. Cancel my plans and hold my meds. My night is booked. I know at this point, this is sounding a little bit familiar to some of you. You all have your stories of crazy guy. 
and I've got a ton of them myself. I can go on for days and days and days with this. Now this one, this one is a whole different breed because you guessed it, we're in October and this one is my special Halloween art dealer story. Now I don't know if you've worked a gallery floor yourself or, or any sales floor for that matter, but if you have, you're probably familiar with an up system. And if you haven't, well, let me quickly explain it. An up system is a very simple device of rotation. It's a way to make sure that the sales floor is fair for all the salespeople working on it. They take turns one at a time. And when it's your turn, no matter who comes in that front door, well, that is your up. Well, in this particular story on this particular day, the very next up belonged to Jamin. Jamin was a bright-eyed enthusiastic young man just out of college and excited about his new career as an art dealer. Jamin had studied up on all the artists. He had learned a lot of the basic techniques of how to take an up and how to sell someone a piece of artwork. And Jamin was ready to give a presentation to whoever that was who came in that front door next. Now, what's going to come in that front door? Well, that can be very exciting. This gallery, it sits right on the edge of Union Square. And if you're not familiar with Union Square, Union Square is a very well-heeled, upscale shopping district right in the heart of San Francisco. It is also on the border of another neighborhood. It's on the border of the Tenderloin. And if you're also not familiar with what the Tenderloin is, the Tenderloin, well, let's say it's everything that Union Square is not. And because of that, because this gallery sat right there on the very razor's edge, those two communities, you can in one moment be serving a rock star or a, a prime minister of another country. You also could be talking to Jackie. Jackie was a wiry guy. Looked like he was probably just released from an institution. Matter of fact, I can almost bank on it. Definitely schizophrenic, and later we would learn a crack addict, jittery and twitchy, very much like Charles Manson. I'm not kidding. I'm not, not speaking in hyperbole here. He was the kind of guy that you knew he was young, but he looked like a very old man at the same time. And he, he was punching out of his skin. He came in, and Jamin, they raring to give a presentation, bolted right to it. He said, hey, how you doing today? Have you been here before? Have you ever collected any art from us? You motherfuckers owe me for my painting, Jackie exclaimed. Didn't really phase Jamin, though. Jamin, Jamin had learned that anything could happen. He, had, he was more focused, really, on what it is he wanted to say more than what, you know, Jackie wanted to say. And he said, what are you talking about? And he says, that's my fucking painting in the window. You owe me for it. Give me my painting. I'm taking it. I want my painting. Give me my fucking painting. He screamed. And he said, that's not your painting. Jamin was going to engage him in a conversation, which, as anybody knows, at this stage of the game, you just shut up and hope he goes away as fast as possible and kind of runs out of gas. But Jamin says to him, that's impossible. 
he's actually going to start telling him about the painting. He says that painting was done by the artist Alberto Vargas, Vargas, the famous painter of the American pinup. And, and Jackie went on. He's, he got enraged. The more that Jamin wanted to explain to him that that wasn't his painting, all the more addled and infuriated Jackie got. You owe me for the painting. That's my painting, son of a bitch. Give it to me now. I'm taking it. And Jamin, getting a little bit rightfully shaken at this point, says, no, you, you can't have the painting. That doesn't belong to you. you sir, you're going to have to go which isn't really the way you talk to crazy. I mean, I, I know if you haven't really worked at the edge of a giant neighborhood mental institution, you're probably not familiar with the dialogue, but that's not quite how it works. It works more like a body shuffle. You kind of physically herd them like a sheepdog towards the front door. You nod and you smile and you say, uh-huh, and I hear you, and you let them kind of vent out as they go. God damn it, give me my painting. I'm going to up, you son of a bitch. I'm going to kill you as you stand there. This is not an empty gallery. This was a gallery with other collectors in it. Some of them even had kids, tourists, people who were just on a nice vacation to Rice-A-Roni, San Francisco that wanted to come in and look at some pretty pictures in a fancy shopping district. And right in the middle of the gallery, they've got this. Now, if you listen to part one of my conversation with Theron, you've already picked up on something interesting. Theron, coincidentally, is very exposed to crazy because he worked in a mental institution, a very famous mental institution at that, working with actual real psychotics. And by this point, Theron came down and he did the technique with, I think, a couple of the others of us. We did the herd to the door. We let him vent out and it went on its way. And that really isn't the end of the story. Remember the part where I said, this is my painting, and I'm going to take it with me right now? There's a reason why he was saying that. Over time, we learned that Mr. Shan was under the impression that, that he painted this painting of Batgirl. Now, ignore the fact that the painting was done five years before Jackie was even born, because that's really irrelevant. Jackie actually himself didn't know for a while that he painted it. But according to him, while in prison, the devil came to him. And the devil became a very good friend. And you may be asking, why the devil come to Jackie? Well, I'm going to tell you. The devil needed to come to Jackie because he explained to him that he made a painting. He made a painting that's hanging in a gallery in San Francisco. And that he painted it himself. And that it was owed to him. And that the people in that gallery, they stole it from him. They were keeping it captive. And that it's his job to rescue his painting from that godforsaken gallery in town. And hey, when the devil comes to you, you gotta listen. This awareness with a newfound reality became Jackie's one obsession in life. And we, we for days and weeks to come, we get to live in Jackie's world. That incident, that moment of Jamin's up that I just described, it would repeat itself. Day after day, night after night, Jackie became a regular part of our lives. And still, this is not a story about a particularly bad version of just a crazy guy who comes into your gallery and gives you grief. Because like I said, I've got 30 or 40 of those. 
No, this is the part where it gets unique. This is the part where if you've ever owned a gallery, you're going to start to shake a little bit. Just because Jackie is crazy, just because he's schizophrenic, just because he's a, an adult drug addict, doesn't mean he's not without his own resources. Somehow this wiry, Manson-y-looking guy got it together enough to go on down to the Civic Center, go into a government building, fill out a form, find the money to pay the $100 fee that's required to file this form, and was able to serve the gallery with not not a small claims case about his painting that we took from him. No, 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 not that. No, not a not a civil case, not an actual civil case of claiming that this painting was owed to him and that he had painted it. No, 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 not that. He went into the different building. Jackie went into federal court. We were served an actual federal lawsuit with a claim that this gallery had stolen his painting. Here's something else about federal cases. You not only have to answer it, no matter how absurd it is, but you have to come with representation. You have to take it that seriously. You can't just show up and say, Your Honor, look, he's just a nut job in the neighborhood. Clearly we can see there's nothing to talk about here. No, it has to actually be played out like a real case. The whole thing is going to happen, and it's going to be serious. Jackie got to sit at the prosecution's table, and the owners of our gallery got to sit at the defendant's table with their attorney, and they actually had to go through the process of listening to Jackie in a federal court tell his story. He told the whole tale. And the judge listened to it. Now, of course, I'm not going to tell you that this was pursued like a normal case. The judge, he, he indeed, after hearing Jackie say his piece, and he dismissed the case. He let it go. And then it got quiet for a while. Jackie kind of seemed to vanish. Maybe, maybe he was put away. Maybe he was put in an institution. Maybe whoever cares for people like that somehow intervened. Maybe the devil came and explained to him some other stuff was going on that he needed to pursue around town. But that wasn't the end. We found out what Jackie was busying himself with. It was an appeal. So it starts again, so it seems. Not wanting to repeat history over and over again. They decided they were going to go down to the address that was on the form for the claim. And they were going to find out what Jackie was really about. Maybe talk a little bit of sense in him. I think it falls into the category of what people do in an otherwise desperate situation. Not wanting to spend another few thousand dollars once again on more attorney's fees. And not wanting to continue to be terrorized as this continued to go. Because God knows when that appeal didn't work, and of course it wouldn't. Jackie would probably be just that much more infuriated. And one day, while sitting at my desk in the gallery, I saw the two gentlemen who I uh, knew as my, uh, my teachers in this business suit up. They braced themselves and they went out the door, kind of looked like they were soldiers going off to war. They were going to go into the loin. They were going to go into some welfare hotel and they were going to see if they could talk to him. And about an hour later, they came back. And Theron, while passing my desk, caught my eyes. 
And Theron just said this, because it's over. You're not going to see him again. No, Theron and Jim didn't kill him. I promise you. They're just not those type of guys. Uh, but they learned Jackie was dead. Jackie had almost literally exploded his lungs while taking to the pipe. And uh, that had happened about a week back. And that really brings us to the end of our story. And I guess you're going to ask at this point, so what's the moral, Danny? I'm sure you're saying all of this just to give us a moral, some kind of a wrap-up. Is it a parable? Is it a parable with a message? And no, no, there isn't. There's no moral. That's not why I'm telling you the story. I think I'm telling it to you for this reason. You know, we've gotten a lot of interaction from people who listen to the show. A lot of people listening to the show not only are very seasoned art dealers and are very interested to find out what fellow art dealers are talking about, but a lot of young folks, a lot of people actually thinking about going into this as a new career. And what some of those young art dealers are in experience, and I know if you've got some years under your belt, you've definitely experienced it. If you ever worked for a gallery owner or worked for a director, at one time or another, you've either been told, or if you're new to this, you're going to be told that anybody who comes in that door is genuinely a possibility. They are a prospect. You're going to be forewarned that you don't know who those people are. You can't assess it just based upon their clothes. You're going to get told stories about the guy, he was a little bit quirky and he was in ripped up jeans and a ripped up t-shirt, but by sticking into it, I found out that he was just some crazy tech guy worth gazillions of dollars. And by the end of the day, not only was he wonderful and charming, but we had sold him a million dollars worth of one artist's work. You're going to hear those. And I've got a few of those stories too. They're true. They happen. You do this job long enough, you're going to have a lot of stories about the guy you could not pay. I guess all I'm saying is, Next time someone tells you that story, tells you that you can't guess who they are, tells you that you can't judge a book by its cover, play them a recording of this podcast. Get a little bit of a grin out of it. Get the joy of, of, of knowing something a little bit different. That sometimes crazy, well, crazy is genuinely crazy. And after they fire you, and once you're unemployed and you're out there looking for new work, come on down here to the old art dealer bar and I'll buy you a stiff drink. We'll hang out in my booth here in the corner and I'll tell you a few more. If I told you any art would do on your gallery walls, you'd laugh at me. And if I told you that anybody with a charming smile could sell that art, you'd laugh even harder and you'd be right to do so. So tell me this, why is it that when it comes to making a little bit of noise or even making a lot of noise about an art opening or something else you have going on in your art business, people in our industry keep on hiring just any Joe Blow publicist. You hire a specialist. If you've ever, like I, hired anybody to do publicity for your business, you get to quickly understand that not just any publicist understands what we do. That's why. That's why people who are smart in our industry, who know what they're doing, turn to relevant communications. 
Relevant Communications with their owner, Allison Zucker Perlman, and her crack team of art industry publicists do an amazing job. They understand the details of what it is that we do. They understand the quirks of our industry and, and our very specialized needs. And they understand it because they've been doing it for a very, very long time and in many different forms and with incredible successes. Their list of clients who they've worked for is long and impressive, and I suggest you go check that out at their website, relevantcommunications.net. Take a card out of Danny's Rolodex and thank me tomorrow. Give a call to Relevant Communications. Did you know that Steve Diamond moved his gallery, Arcadia Contemporary, to the historic Culver Hotel in downtown Culver City, my hometown? You didn't? Well, if you didn't, it's because you didn't pick up the latest copy of Art World News. That was in there amongst a hell of a lot more. For the past 20 years, Art World News has been the one source where people in our industry have turned to to find out what's going on, what the trends are, what the new things down the line are going to be, and what other art-selling professionals are up to. Gain a little wisdom from each other. Do a lot of what we're doing on this very podcast. Art World News has been doing this for a long time, and it's been one of the main sources for that very thing. It's also the very reason why their pages are filled with some of the most important advertisers in our field. It's because those folks know that if you want to talk to art gallery owners and art dealers and art brokers and even art auctioneers, you go to put your ad in Art World News. Hell, that's where we put our ad. Today on the show, we have part two of my conversation with Theron Cambridge. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, I highly recommend you go back to that earlier episode and do so. Now, I think I should set the stage just a little bit here. First of all, Theron, like I noted, is an art dealer, and he's also a co-owner of the San Francisco Art Exchange, a gallery in San Francisco, California. And if you're familiar with the San Francisco Art Exchange, you know it is not like your normal gallery. Some that are just a little bit familiar with it will call it a rock and roll gallery. Some will call it a celebrity gallery. Some will say it's a gallery of pop art. And on the surface, you're right, but Theron would be quick to correct you because you would be missing the real heart and soul of this, the crux of what these guys are doing, and truthfully, what has kept them alive for so long. There's been a number of people who have gone down the celebrity route, even though you could say Theron and his partner Jim were amongst the first, if not the first, to take this on as a subject matter for a gallery focus. They're doing something different. They're talking about not just popular culture, They're talking about the things that defined our society, that changed the path and the flow of history, if you will. They don't just talk about the great rock stars as they came, although that's in there too, but they get into the great leaders, the great writers, the great politicians, the great spiritual leaders, if you will. All those people are fair game. They show a lot of photography, but it's not just photography. They show a lot of paintings that are done by famous people, but it's not just famous people. No, This is a collective profile, if you will. It represents the things that we together cherish, and it represents things that they find important themselves. And somehow, in doing so, in keeping pure to that, they've attracted a loyal group of collectors who take what they do extremely seriously. Now, I know I loaded it a little bit heavy, but these folks mean a lot to me. It's the first gallery I worked at myself, and it's really where my first mentors can be found. I hope you appreciate this conversation just as much as I do. 
I know Gallery One to have been part of the one of the links in the you know the chain of Dolly. And Dolly, I think, is one of those weird things that uh, captivates me, mm. really gets me interested. And it's because of this, because starting when I did, it was close enough to the Dolly scandals mm-hmm. that it had an impact on me. And mm-hmm. it was this thing, I never knew it existed. I never saw that 60-minute show. It just wasn't part of my universe. Mm. And here I am, an art dealer, and it would come on time and time again where I'd get these people where I would do a big presentation in the viewing room. And, you know, Lots of times, let's say this happened five times, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. So sure. But literally would say, we love this presentation. We love this piece of artwork. You know, essentially we can afford it. We want and everything else. Mm-hmm. We bought a dolly. I don't think we're ever going to buy or be able to trust another art dealer or an mm-hmm. art gallery for the rest of our lives. Sure. And th- that stuck in my head of, I don't know what happened, but whatever happened has a impact on our profession. And here it is it's had an impact on this profession that I'm going to pursue. Yeah. But I'm fascinated because I knew, you know, later on that gallery one was a gallery that was getting cited as being part of this chain. I don't know what to what degree. You know, so the first time I ever saw, I mean, aside from looking in books of Salvador Dali, just amazed by his technical abilities, imagination, et cetera, that, that idea of creating things that were just like, just, unfathomable that somebody could think about it but then paint it the way that he did so on my my around the world sojourn when i was in hawaii i walked i was walking down the street and must have been waikiki or whatever and i looked across the street and i saw this this portrait of abraham lincoln and i was looking oh that's a gallery i'm gonna have to go back and check that out because i'm you know interested to look around so i came back in and i walked into the gallery and and I said, well, there's this, they were just talking to me. I was probably no lead or anything, but who knows? Maybe they could have sold me something. This is a Lincoln and Dolly vision. It, yeah. They said, I said, well, where's, there was a Lincoln. I said, there was a portrait of Lincoln in here somewhere. I didn't see, where, where is that? And he walked me right back to the front of the gallery where it was. And then he showed me the lens and it shrunk. And I was just blown away that somebody could conceive of such a thing and do this, do this Lincoln and Dolly vision thing. Salvador Dali. I didn't know it was Dali that did it even. By the way, might have been the very same hotel. I was 13 years old in Hawaii. Never been into a real gallery like that. Captivated by that piece. Yeah. It was facing the front window. I thought it was the coolest looking thing. The the interesting thing at that time, he tried to close me. (laughs) (laughs) Here I am just sort of getting ready on this trip around the world. And he was telling me how I could do partial partial down payment. That time was like 1100 bucks, 1150, whatever. And I couldn't afford it. Don't feel special. He probably tried to close me too. Thirteen year old kid, come on, go to your mom's purse. Right, exactly. Just take out that little piece of plastic. He's doing a soupy sales on me. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my first exposure to Dolly, and of course, I knew who Dolly was, and I was, you know, even further amazed that he was uh, that this thing blew me away. It's like watching a magic trick, you know, like an illusion. So when I got into dealing art, you know, that first gallery had some Dolly in there among other things, and uh, just art to me. It was just like, well, that's cool. That's Dolly, this, whatever it is. And one of these days I'll be in a big gallery and I'll be able to even have more of these things, sorts of things, one of these days. And so when I started working there, I knew that there were things coming in, but I never thought twice about it. Um, just that's what it was. Now, over time, 
they started doing programs, selling quantities here. Well, Gallery Hawaii is doing it. Center Gallery is doing it. There's a bunch of people doing this. Here's the contracts, etc. I know that they were doing deals. Sabater was involved in signing. Sabater was uh, uh, Dolly's secretary at the time, who passed away last year, I think two years ago, as a matter of fact. Um, and so the contracts were like, we got contracts, here they are. But then... Uh, this is a contract to be a program gallery receiving prints? No, contract on the editions. We sign a deal. We're going to print the, do this publication, and here's... Here's Dolly. He signed off. Sabatier signed off that this is an edition we are going to do. Okay, right. And then so this you is get the publisher the f- coming to publisher, you saying, this yeah, is exactly. the, we got the deal. Yeah. And so that's how it was laid out. But I remember they were saying, well, you know, getting anything signed by him right now is a good thing. And so you, you sell the work as, you know, among the last. And uh, it was just part of what you did. It's just part of what, with the, what the makeup was, along with the Moreau and along with the whatever else that was on the wall. In those days, which makes sense from a business point of view, you make a deal with a guy who's whatever near, he was in his 80s, and you put up a bunch of money to do an edition. And then you're going to do the edition, and then you go back to have him sign them, and he's not there to sign them, and all your money's gone because he didn't live long enough to do it. So part of the deal they used to do in those days is don't worry, here's a thousand sheets of paper. There's, he just signed them. And... And you can print on these. What evolved, I think, the corruption, whether it's organized crime or whatever, they found out, well, you can sell signed sheets of paper. Can you do a Dolly signature? And that's, I think, that was, in retrospect, I think what evolved is that sheets of paper became the commodity, not the image. And then if it was Dolly's signature, you were still selling the commodity like a piece of currency, but then pretty soon you have counterfeits like currency that were being sold too. Yeah, print your dolly on this thing. In fact, you can print a Margaret Keene on it if you want. You know, whatever. I mean, that's the well, yeah. and I have a Margaret Keene dolly. It's very nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, I think it's an interesting part of the, our, our business, which is I think like a lot of things, it's we have an unregulated, unpolished business. and there's a certain degree of casualness and laziness and things we just sort of get um, cynically comfortable with, with our business. You know, it's a very short walk and an not corrupted one to say, well, if you're going to print pictures by the artist and then bring it to the artist to sign it, you know, you do edition after edition. It doesn't seem that weird to say, well, he's going to be on vacation next month when we have to put this thing out. So let's, Let's sign it and then send it to the printer. That's not so weird. It's still a signature on his piece. And once you start going in that road, you know, anything could happen in any order. Suddenly that can very quickly turn into pieces of paper sitting in a suitcase. And then, you know, with no malice intended, like we're just being sloppy is what we're being. You know, the the interesting what you said is that this is an unregulated business. It always has been. It's not like getting a real estate license or an insurance license or a stockbroker's license or or any other kind of license to do something. All you need is a business license and a resale license. And anybody can do this. It's almost like a religion to some degree. You could just show up and say, I'm going to do this. And I worked with a lot of people in the art business on the floor. And a lot of those people couldn't get jobs doing anything else. If they yeah. had a gift to gab and they could persuade somebody to do something, they might might have been doing a timeshare like two months before. Now they're doing art. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were in the business that just had the gift of gab 
and didn't have to be really pass any tests. You can have an an art gallery. You don't have to pass a test. Uh, and you can get away with all kinds of stuff. And that's that was really... And like religion, though, also being afforded a great deal of authority. Yeah. Because people are intimidated by art galleries and the whole notion. They must they, know something. They feel they're ignorant. So this guy is not just a guy in the street saying he's an art dealer. He's in a building that says he's an art dealer. And so anything that comes out of his mouth has got to be something. I always saw maybe 20 years, 25 years ago, maybe after we opened San Francisco Art Exchange, or maybe just before... I was pondering this very thing. When is this industry going to have some sort of standards that everybody has to follow? I mean, there is consumer law, but if you're going to identify yourself as having expertise into something, how do you how do you earn that other than simply saying, I know everything? And then all of a sudden people say, Oh, he knows everything. Go ahead and tell me what the truth is. And there's no no consequence to somebody saying they know everything. You can be the best you know, just a very clever sociopath and not have to pass any ethics laws, uh, regulation or anything in this business. And I don't know, I, I like what I'm doing now because, I mean, although in the business, if I was going to deal in Picasso, if I decided to shift into Picasso entirely, I know pretty much what I need to look for in Picasso. I know who the dealers are and I know how to get authentication. So I'd still follow that standard, in my opinion. Yeah. I would follow the standard but I like what we're doing now because pretty much every producer of what we do, whether they worked with Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles or Marilyn Monroe or anybody else, I know them. I know I'm one degree of separation either from the subject or from the person who knew the subject and certainly the artists themselves. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I'm close to everybody means that I know it's real because I just talked to them last week and they came directly from them. And, and that's one of the big ones for a lot of people. How do I know this is true? How do I know that this is real authentic? I just say, well, let me call up Roger Dean and, and you can talk to him yourself, you know, and that kind of thing. But isn't it funny? It, it's often, it seems that those type of questions, how do I know it's real? Mm. Which is an honest feeling to have. But it's also a surrogate, which is I can't, I don't have the, uh, the experience to challenge you on the statements you're making about this thing, piece's place in the art world and art history. I don't have necessarily the chops to talk about its social relevance because i haven't been meditating on it like you have for the past couple of decades but i can jump to this very quick question of well at least is it legitimately what you're implying that all these things are yeah you know that it's a real it's a real version of all those things i think and so one of the things that we have that a lot of people don't have and it's just because we started doing this before anybody mm -hmm. else is that if if i need to have people say on camera or in writing or over the phone something and they are a credible validator of what I'm saying, that's better than just showing up two degrees or three degrees later and say, well, I think Ronnie Wood is, is a great guy and I don't know him. But if I ask Ronnie, can you do a, can you give me a one liner that you'll stand behind and I'll just show that or I'll, I'll show him a text that I got from him right. stuff like that. That's more like saying, well, you know, Ronnie Wood did all these things. And in fact, he knows Patty Boyd and he knows other people. So he said, if he said, I'm the man, maybe I'm the man. You and if Ronnie doesn't say, if Ronnie says it, and then Patty says it, and Roger says it, and Storm Thurgeson said it, and the Vargas Estate said it, and Susan Bernard said it, pretty much you have a bunch of people that 
adding credibility that, well, you know, if you're going to, you know, maybe I'm the greatest sociopath in the world, so therefore I've got them all snowed. But at some point, there's a, a tipping point that says, well, if he says that's true, and these people say these guys are the best, then it must be, okay, I'm confident. And I'd hate to start from the beginning. In fact, I don't think I would do this if I hadn't started it, because it's not my thing. If I hadn't started this, I'd be looking for something else to start, only because I don't want to like I was saying, I don't want to wear somebody else's clothes. I want to wear uh -huh. my clothes. Unless I was truly inspired by, by it, I wouldn't do it. I'm just doing it now because, you know, it's our, uh, it's our child. It's our whatever it is. Make sure I understand what you're saying. Mm. You wouldn't set out on this niche specialty that you've gone into or art dealing as a whole or? No, I mean, the, well, in the in the context of art dealing, I wouldn't yeah. start out with, with, uh, I wouldn't start out calling anything a niche. First of all, I mean that would be the thing yeah, I, I do. Kind of but I know, like I knew, the pejorative, and I, I get said it. it. I no, I get it. it. No, I know. I didn't mean. I was just yeah. saying that if I was going to say I'm going to do this niche, yeah, I'm already doing the wrong thing. But I if mean, I if somebody else was San Francisco Art Exchange, and I was doing something else, I might go into being a great dealer of plein air painters or or portrait artists or or cartoons or start an urban art gallery focusing on on artists that work in the urban environment doing mm -hmm. graffiti. That would be my thing because I would own it. It would be a personal thing, not doing what somebody else has been doing. Yeah, but it feels like that became that. I mean you said it yourself. When 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 you got into that and it's it was serendipitously so, right? But I assume you were following certain levels of interest, you know, at least in the early stages. And oh, it was what a, we're doing now, or yeah, yeah. oh yeah, no, I was, you know, and, and complete and, interest, com total, total interest in doing it. Right. Yeah, but now it's in that a way done. taken away from you. Hmm. That is, what you did when you were doing something that no one else was doing. Uh, you know, that was exciting, and then it became this category you know, not to any small part because mm. of you being successful or at least appearing to other people as being successful or at mm -hmm. least looking like you're having a lot of fun, mm -hmm. you know. And now it's it's a whole business unto itself. And not only a business, but a growing business. I think right. we're just in the very beginning of, of some hockey stick that's down the road. The thing is, I couldn't just do it like some other outfit. I'm not a rock and roll gallery. Some people like, Joe, you're like that rock and roll gallery over there. Over there. Yeah. I said, no, I'm not a rock and roll gallery. I have rock and roll stuff. I have a civil rights show up right now, uh -huh. or I'll focus on Marilyn Monroe. I did a show on Sinatra, whatever. Yeah, I, you know, I the idea of being down a narrow channel of what we do is boring to me. I would not want to be a rock and roll gallery. Yeah. So in some ways, pieces of what we do have little outcroppings of what we do, but none of those by themselves is enough to get me excited. In fact. It's just the opposite. Bore, he sort of bores me. If I was focusing on just rock and roll photography, it would be boring as hell. I, could not, I couldn't do it anymore. So if I'm doing something now, it's not just... I mean, you know that I've always been interested in te technology, and I blame you for it. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's not just about doing the niche thing or the pop culture thing. Yeah. It's about finding new ways to communicate, new ways to do things. Yeah. Let's do a concert with Brian Wilson. I wonder if what that would take. Uh -huh. And we do it. Not because 
this is part of our niche or this is a new paradigm or this. No, just let's do that. And now people contact, we're going to, you know, you, you develop enough friends. You say, that was kind of fun. Why don't we do it with somebody else now? And the idea of going into other areas of technology, expanding, we're in our, our seventh generation of our website. And I'm already planning on our eighth generation, complete overhaul again. Uh, for I call it seven, SFA 7.0. Yeah. Um, but when that's out, two years is a long time. And when that's out, there's a new paradigm yet to be explored that we can't even think of. I am working on a new paradigm that has to do with art dealing, which I can't say right now because I don't want to be on record. But there is something that nobody is doing that just sounds as cool as hell is the way art dealers actually function in the world. It's a global concept that that may certainly is something I want to explore. Can we explore the thoughts around that without getting into your conclusions? Um possibly it's related re, what drives our business more than anything even for the sociopath is relationship mm-hmm. if you don't have a relationship you don't have anything going on for me in all my career when you're talking about being in psych or whatever else traveling around the world the whole driver for me was relationship i meet people i stay at their house i stay in their hut i i, I camp in the woods i i go to uh go to some event uh uh i open a gallery i talk to strangers who walk in the door for me, the big driver has always been, and in psych, is relationship. One-on-one, group of people. People know me. I know them. We share stories. And the reward in my business, doing what we do, is not about the stuff on the wall by, as a static thing. It's about the intangible experience with the person, with the, the staff person, with the people I work with, with Jim. And with the stuff that radiates off that thing, it's the intangible that drives it. If you don't have that intangible relationship thing, I don't know. You might as well just give, I mean, I would just give it up. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be exciting anymore. The chewing gum wouldn't have any flavor, so why, why do it? Well, I think that hits on a bunch of stuff. I'm going to roll back to the conversation, and I don't want to fall into it, but the conversation we just had about the question of authenticity of the artwork. You know, I talk to art dealers all day long, you know, and anytime... I get a, you know, I just had this recently where I had an art dealer calling me up and had all these questions about um, the the type of printing that was done for an artist of ours and the kind of paper and the process and everything. And I'm, I'm happy to answer it. We put a lot of time into it. But at some point I told her, because it was going way too long, I said, if you're really hung up on selling this based upon the printing process, and that's coming up in a conversation with a customer in the gallery where you have to say more than this is the process they use and it's good. And now you're going into depth in it. Something went horribly wrong in what you're trying to do there. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably got you off track. Cause they're, like I said, you know, they're, they're asking about something because they don't have anything else. They know what to ask for. It's your job to tell them the cool and interesting things, not for them to figure that out. But it also means you're not having a real dialogue with them. It's certainly not about anything of any value or anything that's going to ever want you to, buy a piece of artwork or to have it in your life. And I think you're right. I think that's a big thing that gets lost relationship. It's the primary part of the, yeah. the, the, the it's not just the relationship with the salesperson or the client or you or, or anybody in the room. When you forget that the reason people actually part with money for anything, they're not parting money for a thing that you can actually hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. They're 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 parting with money in exchange for the thing that, for what that thing is going to provide them. 
a car, they're not buying the car. They're buying the fact that the car can take them somewhere. They can drive it, whatever. That's a little more concrete. But when somebody buys a work of art, they're not buying the thing in the frame. The amount of value that they're giving you in terms of money is the value of the intangibles of what that thing delivers, what it provides. And it could be 5000 it could be 20000 They're not buying, buying the thing. They're buying the intangible of the effect of that thing. Mm-hmm. They're paying for the effect. You go to a movie because you're, you're not buying the actors. You're not buying the screen that are being shown on. You're, you're, you're paying for the effect that that film is going to give you for the next two hours. I tell my salespeople sometimes, or even sometimes clients or artists, is that when, uh, when somebody is spending money on something, and the amount of money it takes to get that thing, you, that's where the, the barrier or the opportunity is. The thing that they're exchanging the money for has to be of greater value than the money it takes to get it. Otherwise, you don't do the trade. You don't do a lateral trade. You certainly don't give more money for something that has less value or anything. You do, you do a trade that's an uptrade. You mm-hmm. always trade up. So if it costs $5,000 to buy a thing, you have you go through and experience what's more important to me, that thing and that effect, or the $5,000. Mm-hmm. If the $5,000 is more valuable in your mind than the thing that you were thinking about buying, you keep the five grand. I'm hungry. Give me the hamburger. I know it's going to be five bucks, but the five bucks isn't going to do me any good right now. That burger will. So you, and that's what I probably we do with a lot of things in everything, in relationships and objects and tangibles. I think the idea of what kind of printing was done, what kind of paper, what kind of ink, all those other things. Now, there's some things that comes to value. Will this fade out in a, a year? Will that fade away? Mm-hmm. That's, that's important because if I'm buying the intangible and the intangible, the ability to have the intangible occur goes away because the ink fades away, then that's a good question to, to answer, a solid question. But if that's answered, you're not selling the material. Yeah, but I think when that's being asked too much, it says a whole nother question hasn't been answered, which is, have we made the impression that this gallery, me as the art dealer, have I impressed upon you enough that this is a place where pieces of this value do get sold normally, that this is a natural place for that to take place? Even more essential is that, is this thing worth 20 grand? Right. No matter where it's hanging. And if it's not worth it, then then that's that's it. That goes above and beyond the brick and mortar or the online venue you're looking at is if it's not worth it, then why would I spend the money on it? However, if you demonstrate the value to the user and you demonstrate some comps or some ideas that this is not an unusual price point, then the conversation is how valuable is this to me? Mm-hmm. The relationship that I have with not just the source of the thing, but more essentially, the thing that I'm thinking about getting, because I'm not taking the gallery home, I'm not taking the salesperson home, I'm taking this home, and mm-hmm. I'm taking that experience home, and is having that in my environment worth that worth that money? And relationship is everything. You deliver that information based on a credible relationship, a knowledgeable, knowledgeable relationship, understanding what you're presenting. So that somebody becomes comfortable with them, they're they're getting the support information that just allows them to bring that thing home that means so much to them. Yeah, but I think part of that is what I was kind of saying, which is if the relationship isn't there, 
And with relationship comes confidence. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I can have a relationship with also people I don't trust. Mm-hmm. So it's more than just a relationship. Oh, you're an art dealer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <right>. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, are, are, are we in agreement that what a relationship is based upon is that you have trust in me of being both an authority in this and steering you correctly and being sensitive to what it is means something to you too. That is, I mean, aren't we sort of connecting that thought? Is you're attracted to this thing and it has things in it that represent things that you like and are excited about and speak to you. Now, what I'm going to do is explain to you, you know, why it is you felt that. You're going to have a visceral experience and I'm going to put words to your visceral experience. And behind those words, I'm going to explain what makes all that work. And behind that, I'm kind of explaining there's a reason why I know these things because I care enough about it, because I've put my time into it, and because my values are aligned with yours. You know, my values are that these things should have the same level of credibility that you hope that it has, not just in facts, but emotionally based as well. And out of that relationship is a kind of core trust that allows everything else to fall in line. That if I believe that we're connecting and I can trust you, and that we have something together, you know, the two of us, the notion of, is this gallery a good gallery? Are you an honest broker? Is this a real story? Is this a story of importance when your voice goes up and says this is valuable, that that is genuinely the case? But if all those other things are right and I can't connect with you and you can't make that point. doesn't matter. I mean, that's the, in fact, everything you described is also an intangible. It's the relationship, the trust is an intangible as well. Yeah. And I think the idea that, uh, Sometimes we I experience that sometimes people will pay more for the trust and the confidence, all things being equal, same thing, same price. I don't trust these people. I trust these people. They'll pay more for, they'll pay the the person they trust more money for the same thing than they would from the from the people they don't they don't trust. It's just it's human nature. You have a, a trust trusting relationship, and not only that, they'll buy again and again and again based on that relationship. I. I you're probably a little bit more of a romantic than I am, but um, I used to train my people the more cynical side of, I think, that same point. Mm-hmm. And I used to say, it comes down to what I like to call the schmuck factor, mm-hmm. which is the collector saying to himself, I, can, I love this piece of artwork, and I can afford this piece of artwork, and I want to have it in my life, you know? But what is my insurance when I get home and I invite my neighbor over and he says, hey, I see you just got a brand new piece of art. And I say, yes, I did. And it's by such and such. And he says, well, what did you pay for that thing? And you say, oh, I paid $5,000 for it. And he says, I've never heard of that artist. And you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, that's, I think, you know, I don't think people have that whole dialogue going on in their head. But I think there's sort of this thing in the back. They don't want to be foolish. That measures it, right. They don't want to be foolish. And it's like, please, please convince me that, you know, I don't have the years that you have to invest in this thing to prove that things are real. But you, hopefully you do. And that's what that whole conversation winds up becoming. You're, You're providing the product partly of the insurance against schmuck catastrophe. Yeah, that's this schmuck catastrophe. Is that a registered URL? Yeah, I think Mel Brooks has it. Oh. Yeah. 
Seattle.org as well. It's his next movie or musical. (laughs) Schmuckcatastrophefilm.com. That's certainly true. I mean, I I deal with uh, artists that aren't necessarily famous because I have another gallery that focuses on representational work and uh, unrelated to pop culture. The idea of somebody buying something that they like and they're going to have to, I mean, the impact of the thing has to have impact. It has to, it has to really ring their bell. So if somebody, some friend comes by and says, you know, the same thing, same dialogue. And if it doesn't have that kind of impact, it could be down to the person just doesn't appreciate a landscape. They like abstract work or whatever. The idea of being able to make that emotional bridge with their friend, it could be their friend is always like that. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. But Look what you have on your walls, just fading posters, big deal. What kind mm-hmm. of expert are you? But but the uh but if the if the choice of the person buying that painting, whatever that unknown artist that when the neighbor didn't know, um buys it in a Well, there's a big it. difference in the neighbor not knowing the artist being unknown. I get it. I get it. No, right. I get it. But I mean, the, yeah. the the idea is that I I tell clients sometimes your mom can't choose your friends. Only uh-huh. you can choose your friends. That's good. And you make your choice based on who you are. And if that's what you buy and that's who you are, then then that's what it what matters. And it's like it, buying a painting or buying a photograph is like acquiring a relationship. You can't tell people why somebody's your friend because of what they do. Oh, because they're smart or because they dress nicely or they're funny. Is that why they're your friend? No. Why are they your friend? I don't know. They're just my friend. And art is a relationship that has to do with that genuine experience like a friend would have. And nobody can tell you what to buy. And art is like that. It's like a relationship you're bringing into your life as a, as a long-term relationship. And that's why you've talked to lots of people that tell you 10 years later, I still have that painting. I still love looking, looking at it. I still, it still mean, in fact, it means more to me today than it did when I first got it. I can't believe it. I don't even remember what I paid for it. And that is the essential thing about art and what it means to people in their lives is that supportive relationship, uh, like a friend used to be sold as an investment. Some people still do, but that's like, there's something sick about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really different now for people who sell it as an investment versus people who used to, you know. Hmm. Um, if that's your one-trick pony, then you're going to get people saying you to buy this. It's going to go up in value. But if that's all they've got, then they're not going to succeed forever. They're going to fade out. They're going to burn out because there's nothing edifying about that, either for the buyer or for the dealer who's doing it. There's no edification in that. Mm-hmm. You get a paycheck. Big deal. Tell right. me, tell me how you feel about yourself. Tell me about life. Tell me what what's important. Give me your philosophy of life. And if their whole driver is, I'm gonna just get somebody to give me money because they're the next mark. What kind of life do they have when they go home? I have no idea what that is. It just, you know, they they've traded. They maybe that's a trade down. Maybe we do sometimes trade down for something. And when we do trade down, that's dysfunctionality. You know, if we, we have a tendency to trade down for things of inferior value to who we are, then that's a definition of dysfunction because you're actually giving away life and time in exchange of something that doesn't actually at least keep you stable or elevate your experience of life. Yeah. I always say that what we do is, in some respects, a very unnatural act. 
that is at least the starting point, the nuts and bolts of it. Someone's got a pretty picture and I'm going to, you know, make the argument that you should reward you liking that pretty picture with some random amount of money, either a little or a lot, Me- you know, measured against very abstract things that determine that, you know, there's nothing in nature that causes this to happen otherwise. You know, there's no, you have medicine, I'm sick, right? You know, my, I need a car to get to work. The tires are flat. You sell tires. You know, it's not a natural transaction. Whereas it's complemented by just all the things you were just talking about, you know, very natural things. You know, you're, in, you're introducing the idea of relationship and happiness and things like that. But I guess where I'm rolling back to your point about, you know, trading down versus trading up, you first have to make this first convincing argument that it is a trade up and that you deserve that trade up, that money for greater happiness or some version of pleasure, you know, is in life a trade up. And that's something you have to guide somebody to answer that question for themselves. I mean, a lot of, uh, certainly in the seventies and eighties, there were a lot of deal closers that just would browbeat browbeat people into making a deal. Yeah. Happens in timeshare presentations all the time, even now. Oh, I've seen it in galleries, by the way, as recently as within the past few weeks. That's depressing. (laughs) But the idea of trying to, because the, 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 that's. It's depressing by the way, not just for the collector and for us being in the same profession as that Mm. person, but I genuinely feel sad for those art dealers. Sure. I mean, I've, and I've had little success in that, but I've sat a few of them down, you know, as if I have any right to do that and said, you realize your job's a lot harder than my job. You're going to see a lot less return business. These people are not going to start considering themselves your friend. Mm. You know, you're, you're, the people you send home are going to feel sick at some point about what they do. At best, spend a lot of energy justifying the decision. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so, the, the payoff of it for all the effort is so much less. The idea of being able to tell that to somebody and for them to get it and make a change is so, I hate to be cynical, but a lot, and probably you get it, you tell, you sit those people down and they say, yeah, you're right. And at some point the, the gravitational pull draws them back into doing what they did before right? because that's the comfort level. Well, I, I smoke cigarettes because I'm used to smoking cigarettes. It's going to kill you. Yeah, but I just, you know, I just smoke cigarettes, you know. I think that's just human nature. It takes people to be willing to jump and change and let go of things. And that's kind of what is the big driver now. Innovation, technological advances, the movement toward things are people jumping off of what they're used to. That's what disruption is all about in the technology world now is because disruptors, that's what they want to do. They want to disrupt. They don't want to do things the way they used to be done. They want to do things better even if it means giving up all the quote-unquote security of the way things were done before. Well, that's the universe we live in right now. Everything is disruption, which is, and maybe it's going to be something for a whole other conversation you and I will have some other day, but I I think this is a big umbrella point in any conversation about our business right now, that our business is one that gravitates to being very static. And, And it's ironic 
because it's absolutely the opposite of what it should be, both for the time that we live in right now and for the nature of what it is we do. You know, we're allegedly selling things that are exciting and entertaining and thus dynamic. And we should be like-minded, you know, in that. Whereas we have a whole, a very specific split in the people who go into this business. You know, I joke, but I'm serious about it. There's a lot of people in this that have approached this as if they bought a Togo's franchise. It just was a lot more fun to say that when they go to a cocktail party. And that's why they chose to open up an art gallery versus a Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. And then there's people like you, and I like to think myself, that did it because much less interested in money. We want our atmosphere, our environment to change on an almost daily basis. We don't want the same thing day in and day out. And if you are true to what this is and you keep it entertaining and you keep it exciting and you go with the natural flow of its stream, you know, it should be a changing and exciting thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about reinventing. That's my thing. I think that's just the driver for us. Aside from un unintentionally reinventing the definition of what fine art was from pinup to rock and roll photo photography or whatever. I mean, that's, that's reinventing, mm -hmm. not intentionally reinventing, but nonetheless reinventing. Now there's a whole market that's growing as a result of you know in pinup and and illustration and and photography celebrity or rock photography that that is growing even if i get hit by a bus if jim and i cease to exist that market is now moving you know yeah. in ways that will move without us in their own way but reinventing the entire context in which that takes place is the next big thing and the culture it's shifting because the culture is being molded by uh, uh, interconnectedness that takes yeah. place in shorter periods of time. The internet has sort of transformed everything. I don't believe, I mean, he could have envisioned this. He could have envisioned something like that. But if you, if you think about Steve Jobs in the late 70s saying everybody should have a computer on their desk and people saying, what the hell are you talking about? I don't think he necessarily saw, well, everybody is going to be connected. Maybe he did. But without a bunch of desktop computers around the world, the internet wouldn't even exist. The internet is actually a descendant of the decision to put computers on person's desks. Mm -hmm. And from that change that moved into iPhones and all the other things that we take for granted now as part of the culture, the internet rule runs the world. And this is, if you think about it, it's just a short period of time. When we started first started talking about going online, doing the internet, and we talked about emails, you, you had an email account, I said, what's that? You know, but when, when we went online with our, I was looking at it yesterday on, uh, on the Wayback Machine, you know, the Wayback yeah, Machine. Yeah, yeah, the first so I, iteration I went, of your website. I, I went, yeah, I went to see it. It was our first uh, website we launched in 96. We already had an e-commerce capability on the 96 site. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very sophisticated, but we were already looking at e-commerce at that time when it was still brand new. No, most people saw the internet as a brochure that's online. Now it runs the world. But you know, the parallel I see in what you're saying, it's a difference between telling people what they're supposed to be doing with it versus responding to what the people tell you they want to do with it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I remember going to a store and looking at one of the first home computers when I was young. And so this is like, you know, late 70s, 78, 79, somewhere there. And I remember, I don't know if it was my own parents asking this question or someone in the store said, well, what would you use it for? And the salesman went, well, you can like organize your recipes 
you know, you put that on the computer that way. Um, you can keep uh, maybe the addresses of your, uh, you know, your family members and stuff. His understanding of what you're supposed to use the computer for was, it was understandable. He, he didn't know. It was all he can come up with. But it was so off base. And there was just no way he could predict why this thing was going to have any value, be a purpose to people. I think we're in that equivalent right now. When I go into a gallery and often the way I see art being presented, to me, it takes me back as a kid, watching that salesman tell people they should buy a computer because they can put the recipes on it. The reasons people are giving of why they should buy that piece of artwork right now feels about as relevant to their current lives as telling them they should buy the artwork to put recipes on it. Yeah, exactly. That's true. There's just no registering. In a universe where music is totally ephemeral, books, movies, it's all ephemeral. You don't own it. It lives up in the cloud, you know, and you're trying to sell an artifact of something. You know, I don't mean it in the sense of irrelevant, but an object that represents something in the physical universe. These are all things that like, how do you connect that value? And I think it's still there because I think in the end. And the culture is sort of coming along too. not just that salesman trying to talk about recipes on the computer, but that was the state of the culture. And I talked, I was talking to people about, I don't know, maybe interns. They were young. You know, I have interns work for me every year from around the world. So I'm sitting down there with an intern back in... uh, I don't know, 2005 or 2006. I can't remember when it was. But I said, do you know what cloud, what cloud computing is? Do you know what the cloud is? Mm-hmm. Do you know what SAAS is? Or what, things like that. I had no clue what that was. But So I tried to explain the history of the internet from flat earth to curved earth to round earth to globe to uh-huh. cloud. Basically emanating into, eventually it's just a big cloud. And for somebody coming from Europe as a young person... I mean, here in California, we take it for granted. People come around the world are discovering things. It's like the lightning flashes, but you don't hear the thunder for how many seconds after the lightning. And so if the if we're close to the lightning, it's inevitable that somebody's going to think recipes is the biggest thing you can possibly do because they haven't heard the thunder yet. Yeah. They're only intimated. And that the idea of continuing to push and evolve and change, somebody's going to figure out how to use that Apple Watch in some way that's going to be revolutionary. We don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. To the point that at some point there won't be a watch. You'll just be carrying, it'll be a button on your shirt or whatever. I mean, or whatever is, or whatever it is, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, when I, I, when I first read Edgar Rice Burroughs book, it was called the fighting man of Mars. Mm -hmm. And in the book, there is a scene where the guy walks into a room and there are no lights in the room. They're just hovering hovering clouds that illuminate the room in different corners of the room. And I thought, well, that's, I mean, I was just a kid reading it and I was thinking, okay, yeah. I mean, it takes people to sort of imagine what could happen and then let, let the culture sort of drive to that, that practical aspect. When we're talking about inspiration, great art comes from passion, inspiration, married to technical excellence or execution or practical it's sort of like that. We dream as a, as a culture, and out of that dream, people start saying, well, it's not about why, it's about how. Yeah. And that's what inventors do. And it's kind of what an artist does. I'm certain in 1592 and maybe even 1692, most of Europe still believed the world was flat. Columbus says, I just came back with a parrot. Villages not far from where the ships were probably said, no, nah, it's just, you know, flat earth. 
knucklehead. And so it takes a while for the culture to catch up. And when it catches up, then people have to be ready for that change. And you're talking about galleries that are sort of shrinking and shrinking and just trying to eke out a meager existence and hoping that somebody's going to do something because I'm doing the same thing the same way every day and nobody's getting it. Eventually they tweak out unless they say, what? I just have an epiphany. I'm going to open my front door all day long or whatever the, whatever the epiphany is and things change by changing patterns and people are comfortable with patterns. Well, I think, you know, there's two things here. One, you're describing the adapt or perish kind of model, mm-hmm. which exists in any business or in sure. anything in nature, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also, it goes back to, you know, your earlier big point being about relationships. It doesn't I think that doesn't change. And I think what happens a lot is you take the guy making the buggies who doesn't, you know, start or selling the buggies, who doesn't start selling the automobiles. And it's because where he's missing the message is he thought people were buying buggies from him. He didn't realize that people were buying transportation from point A to point B from Mm -hmm, him. mm -hmm. And that's where he missed the mark. And he didn't see that cars were just a more efficient, better version of achieving the service that he's always been selling. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see a lot of the failings of galleries where, you know, what we're selling is the story, what we're selling is the ability to connect people through how it relates to their life with the story that the art provides and our stock and trade in doing any of that, creating that relationship that you talked about. If you haven't gotten your head around that, that that's what's at the core at any stage in the evolution of what we do, then you're always going to miss. You know, there's this thing that keeps me running through my head, which is always this frustrating thing. It even comes from my parents, loved ones, you know, people really close and know what I do for a living. Where every time an artist comes out, leaves our agency, moves on for whatever reason, and they've been big and successful, you know, whether it was Ronnie Wood or whatever, they always start saying, we're going to get your next rock star. <laughs> you know, or, we're, we're, you know, or are you, are you calling up uh, David Bowie? I hear David D- Bowie does artwork and you you don't get it. You, I'm not, just I'm not putting recipes it. on my computer. Right. It, it's, I'm not that the, the question wasn't how do we show rock stars? That wasn't what we do here. The question was, what was it I can get or have or can present to people that appeals to who they are and what they enjoy in life that speaks to them? Well, it is. It's relationship and relationship is, uh, is founded on communication. Of one ter- form or another, it's verbal, there's yeah. body language, there's uh, just proximity. All those are, are forms of communication, how we dress, how we talk. Yeah, but my, my point is, when you're talking about new evolutions of technology mm. and the new ways, metaphors of doing anything in business, mm. you know, as mm. clouds change and all those other things, or if whether we have floating cloud lights in our future, mm. that's going to be swell and that's going to be a big part of who we are. But it doesn't mean anything to us in the art business unless we are able to both grasp what those things are and not be able to apply it to what's at the core of what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's computers are a great tool for our business, but for people like I was talking about earlier that thought, okay, I'll put all my pictures on a website and then people are going to find that website and then they're going to hit buttons that are going to put money in my pocket. Those are always the ones that failed miserably because they have no understanding of what it is that makes people want to buy artwork in the first place. In many ways, I think in the early days, nobody knew, really understood what the internet was, for example, at all, or what computers are. But certainly the internet, 
you know, there was the the idea that, well, the internet is a place, yeah. or it's a thing, or it's an environment, or it's a this, or it's that. The really the thing about the internet, and always has been and always will be, is it's human beings inventing a new form of communication built on the communication model. The internet is a communication vehicle. It's a form of communication. Even HTML, language is the last letter, because you're actually finding a way to communicate information, story, ideas, pictures, movies, another form of communication, books, another form of communication, music, another form of communication. It is just communication. Yeah. Yeah, we're evolving. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate I it. I really appreciate it. I'll all come back genders. and talk to you about our, 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 new, uh, our new project once we roll it out. That'd be great. It's change. You'll, you'll appreciate. I think you'll appreciate the, uh, the change to the, to that we want to bring to the business. We're hacking into bank accounts and we're actually running all the charges like that and just shipping randomly. That's a good business model. It's pretty good, huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? I love that Mr. Burns one when he opens up a casino <laughs> and he's kind of in his his uh, 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 um, his Howard Hughes nest up above watching the video monitors and he goes, uh-huh. Smithers, I've figured out the perfect business. People come in, empty their pockets and leave. <laughs> <laughs> Was that not a special conversation? I think you can get a sense of why Theron is actually someone who's so important to me and how I learned so much from him in my, in my early years in this business. Still to this day, a lot of what I learned working in his gallery comes into play on a regular basis, and I have a lot to be thankful for. Thanks a lot, Theron, not just for the interview, but for all the lessons you've given me. And uh, since I'm throwing out thank yous, I want to thank another person. Uh, I want to thank a couple of people, actually. If you listen to the episode that came before this one or the one that came before that, you might have heard me in the past uh, say that there's a way that you can pay us back a little bit here at the show, not by money or anything else, uh, nothing that you have to reach into your pocket for, but you can write a review for us over at iTunes. Believe it or not, that makes a big difference. The more positive reviews that are up on iTunes, the more attention iTunes gives to the podcast, the more people who get directed to it, the more listeners we get. That is literally the number one thing you can do if you want to say thanks or throw a little something in my proverbial tip jar. And that is exactly what a couple folks did. And let me thank those people right now. The first one is Meryl Mishka. Now, Meryl wrote that she loves it and she thanked us for making such a show, but she also went on to say that she is an artist herself and she plans on making a career change to becoming an art dealer. And she's looked to this show as being an early introduction to going into that field. And because of that, she is a regular subscriber. That really warms my heart. I, I hope that there would be people just like you listening to the show. And I'm glad that you're here, Meryl. And more importantly, thank you very much for, for uh, giving us a little bit of love over there on iTunes. That was great to see. The other one is Yalinka. Now, I know who Yalinka is. She's actually an art dealer herself. I'm not going to say her name because her name isn't there on the review, but she said some nice things as well. And the fact that it came from someone who I know is a very skilled and experienced art dealer herself, well, that meant all the more. If you could put a review yourself, well, I would appreciate that as well. It's the one way that, you know, you can help uh, put some gas in the proverbial gas tank for this show. 
And if you want to go a little bit further, subscribe. That's another way. Engage us on Facebook. We're out there. We're out there on Twitter, Instagram, all the places that the cool kids are hanging out. And, uh, well, with that said, the other thing you can do is come back and just hang out with us here at the old art dealer bar. That's where you'll find me, sipping a nice cold something-something. And uh, until that time comes, I want to say a very good night, and may all the coconuts fall at your feet, my fellow art dealers. This has been The Art Dealer's Show. You can find us on the web at artdealer.show, facebook.com slash show, Instagram, artdealershow, as well as at artdealershow for Twitter. Twitter.